of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They should be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you are wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or any of my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble in his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This is the word of the Lord. About halfway through that, my daughter goes, oh, we're still in the Psalms. I was like, yeah. Not sure how I should take that. Maybe <laughs> tired of Matthew, I guess. Um, I'm excited to be in this psalm this morning. This psalm is about worship. You might not know it's an acrostic. Uh, verse 1 begins with the letter Aleph in Hebrew. And it goes down through the Hebrew alphabet, and there's a little bit of interest in that. But I think the psalmist is making a point as he presents to Israel, this is, of course, from David, as he presents to Israel kind of the A to Z of worship. And if he's doing something like that, then we should learn from uh, perhaps the most profound worship example in all of the Scripture's record, David himself. That is to sit at his feet and to say, David, teach us how this should be done. Because that's, in fact, I think what the A to Z implies, that this is a manual on how to approach our God, how to speak to him, how to engage and interact with him in a way that's um, a pleasant experience for the Lord and life-transforming for us. The psalmist begins with this call for the Lord to vindicate him. He says in verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust. Now, if you were to rewind to chapter 24, and I think these are, are something of a pair, David asks, he says, who can come into the presence of the Lord? Who shall ascend and enter into his holy place? The answer in verse 4 of chapter 24 is whom? He gives two requirements at the first line of chapter 4. He who has clean Hands, in other words, your activity, your behavior, your external life is lived in righteousness and integrity, and who, the person who has a pure heart. That both external and internal life is consistent with the character of God. Now, if you just stop, who wants to claim they're holy inside and out completely? Please stand up and get struck by lightning. Yeah, like, 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 look at the psalm, and we're like, man, who, can, who then can approach God? The, the past to enter into his presence is given to none of us, because we all have hands tainted by sin. We all have a heart that's impure. And so if we read Psalm 24 and just put a hard stop, we're left hopeless and helpless to enter into the presence of God. 
Psalm 25 seems to work in, in tandem with chapter 24, or Psalm 24, to give us a, a, an explanation. The psalmist in chapter 25 is very aware of his sinfulness, very aware of his lack of suitability to the holy God that he wants to approach. And so rather than saying, I'm not that bad, the psalmist turns his reflection and hope not to himself, but to whom? Verse 1, to you, O Lord, I trust and hope. What a good reminder for all of us that worship does not begin with our capacity, our ability, our purity, but with the God of grace and mercy. As we look at worship in the context, I think oftentimes in our culture, we have framed worship to be something we experience. Um, a few weeks ago, a member of our church sent me an article that described two ways of kind of approaching worship, and it's talking particularly about music. And the contemporary and common way of approaching music is to make it very experiential. That music is something you, you enter into and you feel the presence of God. So churches are filling, literally, their churches with smoke and lasers and sound. And you experience worship. This psalm has almost nothing in common with that. The call to enter into the presence of God starts with, with two considerations. One is the worshiper and one is God, not the worship experience. So we begin, I just want to go through, I don't know that there's a right order to approach this in, but I want to highlight the worshiper, that his goal is the presence of the Lord. Look down with me in, in verse 4. He is calling out to the Lord, and he's aware of his sin, but he says, make me to know your ways. The end of verse 4, teach me your paths. Verse 5, lead me in your truth. Teach me. Then you come down to the end of verse 5. I will wait all day long. We have this supplicant who's just ready and waiting for the Lord. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners. So, so notice that as he's saying, Lord, teach me, instruct me, move me, help me to know how to live. He is doing this on the basis of the fact that he's already failed. Right? He's saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I will steer off your path. I will trespass and violate and, and walk past the boundaries you've laid for me. So I need help. Teach me. Shape me. Instruct me. What a different call than the, than the idea of experiencing God that the, the worshiper's first call to God is intellectual instruction. Give me truth. It is practical instruction. Lead me in this way. It is ethical instruction. Help me to be right. It isn't help me to feel. That, that would be secondary. I think that might be an outcome of blessing from the Lord. But, but the call of the worshiper here is to recognize how desperately he needs God's revelation of who he is and what he demands from sinners and how we must live. And he says, God, instruct me, teach me, lead me. Do this because I am needy and I don't know. He hopes that God will do this. 
He anchors his expectation to the kindness and the sympathy of God. I think verse 5 gives you that idea of desperation. If you look at the end of verse 4, God is the God of my salvation, therefore what does he do? He waits. I don't know if you've ever been stranded in an airport, far from town that you know, far from people you know, far from help you know. I got stranded in Scotland once. <laughs> what do you do? Like, I don't know anybody. I got nowhere to... Finally found a flight, a couple, well, I guess it was about an hour away drive, drove, sat in an airport for 12 hours, just Waiting. I wasn't going to walk home. I wasn't going to hitchhike. I was in Scotland. When your only hope is one thing, you've got to wait for the one thing. God is the God of my salvation. I cannot be good enough to come to Him. I cannot fix what is broken. I am a sinner who needs one thing. It is salvation. It comes from one place, God. So now I'm going to wait for Him because He is my singular hope. Isn't it interesting that the God we want to worship is necessary for His worship? Like, no sinner offers to God a pleasing moment or experience or thought or song without God saying, hey, let me help you out there. You're not going to get this right without me. Not one. This is the child making something special for mom for Christmas and saying, mom, can you help me? I can't do it without you. And it's not as though the mom is displeased or dishonored by that request. It is a recognition in the child that while wanting to please his mother, he still needs his mother to help him please her. What a helpless condition. And what a sweet state of worship to be in. So the psalmist cries out. Look in verse 9. He's looking to God for help, but who does God help? The humble. Who does God teach? The humble. Who does God lead down these paths? The one who keeps covenant and is faithful to his Lord. If you want God to help you, he doesn't just help the rebel. Maybe I should say that better. He does not help the rebel at all in his rebellion. He helps the sweet-spirited man who comes and says, I need help. He helps the one who pleads for uprightness but knows he can't generate it on his own. God does not help the proud. James says and Peter says, the Old Testament says, God resists the proud. Who does God give grace and mercy to? Not the proud, the Bible says. But God is gentle and kind and gracious to those who seek mercy in humility. Look at the end of verse 11. Pardon my, what does he say? For it is great. Yeah, it's so different than the way we talk about our sin. We talk about messing up, making mistakes. We talk about little things we've done. I mean, we even have phrases that are just absolutely dishonest, which is ironic because phrases like little white lie are themselves a huge black lie. 
right? Like, we are lying about lying. We seriously have an issue. But we have ways in which we minimize those things that are wicked treachery against God and his people, our family members, and the community of believers with which he's placed us. The call of the psalmist here is one of absolute dependence and neediness, coming to God and saying, help me worship, help me enter into your presence, help me to know how to live, give me a rightness and path, give me wisdom in how I walk, Lord, help me. And then he says, and this is what the person looks like who gets that help. They know their great sin. They're humble before the Lord. And they're seeking to honor his word, to keep faithful to the Lord. And the Lord is merciful to the sinner in such a condition. Don't lose sight of that. Who is the Lord merciful to? Who does he instruct? The sinner. The one who knows their sin. Worship is not a place for fraud. We see that the worshiper is seeking the grace, the presence, and and association with God, his kindness and grace through revelation. Second, the worshiper hopes in the character of God. He hopes in the character of God. His great anchor is who God really is. His, His worship is theologically driven from its onset. That is, I know God will help me, Not because I'm so wonderful and I'm so attractive to his help, but in fact, the reason God helps me is because of God. The unchanging, never-altering God is our hope today and tomorrow. He is our hope in the future when we stumble. He is the one who has helped us in the past. He will help us again. Look again in the text. I want to take you from verse 5 and following. Verse 5, he is the God of our salvation. In verse 6, it is the basis of mercy that David appeals to, to the Lord. According to his steadfast love, he is, he is called to act. Again, in the end of verse 7, steadfast love causes God to act on the sake of his goodness. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. He has steadfast love and faithfulness in verse 10. God's character is the bedrock of hope for the psalmist. I want to just point out something I found fascinating is the issue of memory in this psalm. Look with me in verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. Right? He's saying, God, remember this. Please don't remember this. Look in verse 7, then he says, remember not the sins. And then again he says, according to your steadfast love, remember me. So three times he's calling God to do something with remembrance. Remember, don't remember my sins. Remember who you are. The basis of his prayer and worship to God is God himself. Right? God, remember who you are. Don't remember who I am. I think it's a profound element in worship that we are asking God to act towards us on the basis of who he says he is. Again, the revelation in God's word tells us he has steadfast love. 
It's the idea of a commitment to act in someone's good regardless of their behavior. And David, recognizing that no one stands before God as innocent, is saying, do not act towards me on the basis of me and my sin. Act towards me on the basis of your character, please. Isn't that the call of every Christian? That we would say, do not treat me as I deserve, because I deserve no mercy. I do not deserve eternal heaven. I do not deserve the presence of God. I do not deserve the sweet fellowship of God's people. And when we get down to it, I do not deserve even the worst day, in the worst moments, in the worst situations of my home. I do not deserve the presence of my own family. I do not deserve it. I am not good enough to deserve any of it. Lord, don't remember who I am. Don't remember me. Instead, I want you to remember, Lord, your mercy. Verse, six, verse 5, right? Excuse me, verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember your steadfast love. For they have been of old. This is who you are. This is who you will be. You are the unchanging God. Please act to me according to your mercy and love. And then he calls upon him to do so for the sake of his goodness. The call of the psalmist here is basic theology, isn't it? I mean, isn't it one of the first things you learn? God is love, he is merciful, he is kind. And the psalmist here in worship is pleading on the basis of this very thought, be merciful to me. When you come into a worship service in which we sing and we read scripture and we pray together and we stand and sing songs, Often what generates passion within people has nothing to do with theology. I mean, you'll see it. I was there when I was in high school. We sang these old-fashioned hymns, and it's like, I mean, you are like, you feel like you're watching paint dry. (laughs) It just feels long and tedious sometimes in certain songs. But if what is generating your happiness is the the flow of the song, its tune and its melody and its performance, rather than the character of God, you are not yet worshiping. And please don't hear me to excuse bad music. (laughs) Like, if God is excellent, and he is, then we should offer to him excellent praise, stuff that is lyrically rich, melodically enjoyable, that reaches our people and connects with us in a way that communicates to us the goodness and grandeur of God. So please do not hear me to be arguing for dusty hymns that should remain dusty. Hear me to be arguing that the anchor of our worship is not the song itself, but the God we sing about. And that should cause us to filter out some songs, embrace others, but to find our God always captivating, to find his worship always worthy of our full energy and attention. So here the psalmist begins with a recognition that he needs God. 
He needs God to lead him. He needs God's presence. He needs God's grace in his life. So then he anchors his expectation not to his quality, not to his ability to enter God's presence, but to the God of grace who can come to him. So then we move forward to the next section. We didn't read it yet this morning, so let me go ahead and read the, the rest of the chapter. I think verse 11 is kind of the hinge verse. So I'm going to start with that. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So the next meditation in this psalm of worship calls the genuine worshiper to understand he must fear the Lord. Genuine worshipers fear the Lord. This is not a a concept we necessarily enjoy thinking about. The concept of fear is often translated to to reverence or or have awe for the Lord. I think Bridges, uh, excuse me, that's not, um, Welch has done a good job in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, in reminding us that fear is, is a massive part of our lives in both good and bad ways. And so just consider a few people who have fear. The 17-year-old girl getting ready in the morning has fear. Right now, some of you might be watching basketball. The man on the free throw line at the end of the game with a tie score with a few tenths of a second left has fear. A sweet mother of four, grandmother of eight, sitting next to her husband in the waiting room, waiting for the doctor to come out and tell them what exactly is going on with her husband's body is experiencing fear. The dad who sees his adult child drive away to begin life out of their home feels fear. And it motivates us. It transitions and changes us. A 17-year-old girl will spend an hour and a half in front of the mirror, fearful, lest she go out in public looking less than the beautiful person she believes she should look like, fearful that she might shame herself or look somehow less than she wants to. Young man on the free throw line, fearful and hopeful about the shot he's about to shoot, hopeful that he can make it, fearful he may not. And so too, the grandmother holding her husband's hand in the waiting room, Fearful that her husband may, in fact, have something serious and life-threatening happening in his body. Hopeful that the doctor will say, don't worry, it's nothing. The dad who sees his child drive away, hopeful that their life is ready to be established and rooted in goodness. Fearful that they won't be present to make sure it happens. So all those people, what do they do because of fear and hope intermingled? The girl spends forever on makeup, touching everything perfectly, looking and re-looking. And I guarantee you, before she walks out the door, she'll walk into the bathroom and look at the mirror again. And the sweet older lady prays with hope. The man taking the free throw takes a few extra blinks to consider the shot, to make sure his nerves are worked out. He shakes his arms to make sure that his fear does not get fulfilled, but his hope does. 
And the dad keeps talking to his daughter. She gets ready to drive away because he's afraid he hasn't said enough. And finally, he just says, I love you. You can always call. Fear and hope move us. So when he says, fear the Lord, he's calling for us to recognize that fear captivates our soul and moves us to activity. So fear for the Lord recognizes the Lord is to be the center of why we do what we do. We move because we are fearful of displeasing him and hopeful of pleasing him. Like a compass is pulled by the magnetic poles of the earth to point north. The soul of the Christian, by fear of the Lord, is pulled to point towards pleasing his God. Fear the Lord is the call of this psalm's middle section. Why? Look again at verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will. And he lists several blessings. God will instruct him in the way he should choose. Did you read how needy the psalmist was for that instruction? Lord, lead me, teach me, instruct me, help me to know your ways. And now, who gets that answer? The one who fears the Lord, whose life is compassed in the direction of the Lord because the Lord has captivated his motives with hope and fear. Looking again at the psalm, look in the latter part of verse 12. Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose because he didn't choose it when he sinned. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. Verse 14, the Lord will be his friend. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward this one, and the Lord rescues him from the trap. Aren't you looking at that going, I want that to be me? Right? Like, I want the Lord to teach my heart to do right. I want the Lord to secure my children. I want the Lord to give me security and well-being. I want the Lord to teach me his ways. I want the Lord's eyes to look on me to bless me, and I want him to save me from what might be coming that I don't see. I want that. So what do you do? You look to the Lord and say, I can't avoid traps. I can't secure my children. I can't even make my life go a little bit longer. I am incompetent to do these things. These are blessings that come from the Lord. Therefore, I will go to the Lord, be his vessel. I will pursue him, and I will trust him to do these things for me. It's a psalm of trust in this point. Who gets the goodness and the sweetness of the Lord? Those who fear him. Every once in a while, I, I can sense, even within our, our church circles, a, a fear of being a prosperity gospel type of group. Right? Like, we're afraid of saying, like, hey, I just want the Lord to bless me. So, do you want the Lord to bless you? <laughs> I can tell we've really, really hit the prosperity gospel well when I say, do you want the Lord to bless you? And I hear, what, mm-hmm, from my wife. And that's it in the whole church. <laughs> do you all want the Lord to bless you? So what should you do? Should you pursue blessing or pursue the Lord? So the paradox is we feel like when we pursue the Lord, we give up. We die to ourselves and we don't get the things we want. And the Lord is saying, no, choose me and I will guard your steps. I will be your source of blessing. I will teach you how to obey my word. Pursue me. 
and trust me to take care of you. That is what the prosperity gospel misses, is it is not God-centered, it is us-centered. It says, you want to be happy? You want to get satisfied? You want to get fulfilled? Do this thing. Scripture says, pursue God. Pursue God for the sake of God and trust him to take care of you. There is a subtle shift, and it is the world of difference between those two things. What is the center of the motive of this psalmist in this section where he's talking about blessing? Let me read it again. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? As he ends the psalm, he says that the friendship of the Lord, verse 14, is for those who fear him. The start of God's blessing is not by pursuing blessing, it's by pursuing the presence of the Lord. That alone is blessing. And with it comes his friendship, his kindness, his presence, and his protection. Finally, I want to end with the last consideration of the psalmist. Come down with me to verse 16. He ends with an appeal. I think there are seven commands in this section. What are the commands? They're from the worshiper to God. So, so they're not commands like from an authority. They're commands in the sense of an appeal, like, like a solid ask. This is a child saying, Mom, please make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The child has no authority, but, but still says something that's an imperative, imperative voice, not an imperative voice. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of distress, the psalmist pleads. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sin. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. As you consider this last section, he is making this constant refrain of appeal for rescue and mercy. So the genuine worshiper seeks the presence of God. The genuine worshiper hopes in the character of God. The genuine worshiper is committed to fearing God. And finally, I think the, genuinely, the genuine worshiper petitions God. Maybe I can pull back a little bit and explain, I think, what one of the things we miss in worship is. God is personal. Have you ever seen someone uh, or heard someone say something like, my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I always cringe when I hear those words because I don't know what's going on theologically in their mind. But it sounds like I might say I have my own personal pet turtle. And, and, and it's, like, it's like Jesus is this like sidekick. And whenever I, I need some blessings from him, I rub his head and say some magic words and out comes a blessing. He's my own personal little Jesus. <laughs> that is blasphemy if that's what's going on in the theological minds of people. It's idolatry. That is not who our Lord is. When we talk about he is our personal savior, we should mean a few things. He is a person who relates to us relationally, personally. That is, when we pray to him, he hears us. When we displease him, 
He's displeased with us. He's not a rock. I don't know the rage of pet rocks. I've never understood the rage of having a pet rock, but I'm pretty sure you cannot feed a pet rock and it won't even know. You don't pray to God. You don't talk to God. You don't worship God. You have a God who is displeased. No one petitions a pet rock who has more than two brain cells. No one petitions a pet rock and says, rescue me. Because it's not a person. So you can personally have a pet rock. It is not a personal rock because there's no person interacting with you. Second, because God is personal and he interacts with us, I relate to him as a person. Okay, so he is personal. Therefore, I must treat him speak to him, relate to him in a way that's dynamic. Okay, so I don't care about my pet rock. It doesn't get mad at me because it's not a person. I also fail to feed my pet rock because I know it doesn't care. It changes both the rock and how it relates to me. If I don't, if I don't take care of that rock, it doesn't care. If I don't pay attention to Jesus, he cares And the way I speak to him and the way I relate to him must reflect that. Okay, so it works both ways in how I think about him and then how I relate to him. So if we have God being personal here, these petitions make so much sense, don't they? God, be gracious to me. Why? Why would you pray that? Because he's gracious. Because he hears the prayers of his people. And he responds by giving grace. Sometimes I think we've kind of bought into the deistic God of today. Okay, so, so God relates and reacts to us means he's not a deistic God. Deism has the idea that, I think it's Bette Midler that sings a song, song like, like God is watching us. Yeah, so what? Well, the point is in her song is like from a distance. That's just wrong. God is personally relating to us. And he's imminent. That means there is no distance. God is here. God is with you at all times. And the psalmist knows it. And so he's equipping Israel to go to God as a personal God who responds to his people with grace and mercy. Look again at these requests. Turn to me and be gracious to me. I'm lonely. Are you lonely? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm really lonely. Some of you, when you go, some of you, when you go home, you could be married or unmarried. You'd be older, you could be a teenager. And you just feel alone. Sometimes it's because your spouse has no idea how much your life hurts. They have no idea what you're going through, and you don't want to give it to them and unload on them. And even if you did, they just don't get it. I think of that every time I see a pregnant lady. I'm like, I'm glad I'm not her. And I don't get it. I'm glad I don't get it. But I know when my wife was expecting and got to the place where everything hurt and she couldn't sleep, she would try to help me to get it. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And I would listen to her and I'd sympathize 
I don't get it. Like, I have not delivered a baby? I have no idea what that's like. That is an experience. I'm just like, on my list of reasons, I'm glad I'm a guy. Here's the psalmist speaking to the eternally happy God, saying, I'm lonely. And God doesn't say, I don't get it. Go ahead and keep talking. I just, I don't get it. It's not what's happening here. The psalmist is saying, God, I've sinned. I've caused a huge gulf of separation between us. I want you to enter into my world and instruct me through your word. Instruct me through your people. Teach me how I can live right. Help me to please you. And by the end, he's saying, and I'm lonely and I'm hurting. Please help. Troubles have surrounded me. Bring me out of my troubles. Consider my affliction and forgive all my sin. If there is a legal basis for which God is keeping away from David, he says, take it out from between us. He's already said, how great is my guilt. He's already acknowledged his sin has caused some of these issues. And now he's saying, Lord, be gracious to me. If in this personal relationship where you respond to me and my request, if there's, if there's a roadblock keeping you from me, take it out of the way because I can't. Forgive me. Be gracious. Consider how many people hate me. Guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Now he says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me. There is debate of whether that's God's uprightness and integrity. But I want you to look at the end of verse 20, or excuse me, the beginning of chapter 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. It seems like the psalmist has come full circle now and is clean before God, confessed his sin before God, and stands innocent before God, having been forgiven by the God in whom he trusts. And now he says, God, help me to walk in a way that's worthy of the, I would say, worthy of the gospel. It's very New Testament language. David wouldn't have thought that. We would think that. That is, God, help my faithfulness to your word be one of the means by which you protect me and I will wait for your rescue. He ends with this really sweet prayer then. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. If I just paraphrase, paraphrase this and like probably do a little bit of injustice to the text, but move it forward to our day. God, rescue Crossway. Protect us. We will wait for your rescue. And it becomes very sweet when you see what the psalmist is doing. He's looking out over Israel. And he sees God's people. And he knows that if he stands as a sinner before God, he's not alone. He's living in a nation of sinners. He's living in a nation that should be faithful to God. But he knows that in every home, there's a couple that both sin against each other, with children who sin against their parents and parents who sin against their children. And he looks out over his military, and from generals all the way down to the lowliest water boy, they're all sinners. And he looks across the land, and even the prophets who preach God's word, they're sinners too. And he's looking around and he says, God, you're our redeemer. And he's calling for all of God's people to be rightly rescued by the God of all grace and mercy. 
sometimes I think in our sin, and apparently being surrounded by a lot of bad people, the psalmist, like many of us, refuses to do what's natural, and that is to only think of our own problems. Now, have you ever been in that place where your problems are so big, you have no energy or mind for anyone or anything else? You're just trying to survive. Verse 19, he's surrounded by enemies. Verse 22, he's praying for his whole people. I think it's a sweet way for us to end our worship. And it's to remember that we are not alone because God is with us. And our church is not alone because God is with us. And so we pray both elements of this. God, be merciful to me and us. And we pray for God's people, not just ourselves. Let me just review here. The beginning of the psalm starts with a prayer of trust. Lord, to you do I lift up my heart. I trust in you. And now we know why. Because he sees God's presence as the center of his worship. He sees God's character as the center of his hope. He sees his needed response as to devote himself to the fear of the Lord, and it culminates in faith-filled petitions for God's rescue, a personal God to intervene in his life because he needs it. And he finally ends with a prayer for the community. God, save us. When we worship, when we measure how effective our worship was, when we walk out of a worship service, my guess is most of our critiques would make the psalmist say, what have you been doing? Why would you think God cares about that? Did you commune with the living God? Did he speak through his word? Did you put your confidence in him? Did you turn from sin? Did, did you put your, your, your efforts into hearing him instruct you in the way? Do you fear him? Do you relate to him as a personal God or is he a God far off who doesn't care? Have you repented of your sin? Those would be questions for how measured and good and valuable our worship is. Instead, often, I'll just say it this way because this is probably true more often than it isn't. That was a long and boring sermon. Or man, I did not like that song, Ancient of Days. It's really slow. Was it good? Did you hear it? Did you, connect the connection? Did you catch the connection in the psalm where God's steadfast love is from ancient of days? We have the God who is the God of the ancient of days who is forever in his love. Before he said, let there be light, he loved his people. Let us train our hearts to worship God I would like to say one last thought, just remind you of the sweetness and the goodness of the gospel of Christ that's implicit in this psalm. This psalm starts with a call to reflect that the worshiper must start with trust. We would use the word faith in the New Testament sometimes. Trust is, is a different verbal way of saying faith. Faith is kind of objective. You have it. Trust points to the personal element. You trust in him. As you go through this psalm, the worshiper is not sinless. The worshiper is a forgiven sinner. 
And the hope is that God will forgive, not that the psalmist will get holy through his own effort. The gospel is the blueprint of theology on which this psalm is written. It is the expectation that sinners only come to God on the basis of God's grace. They do so by trusting in the God of grace to bring them to qualification on the basis of forgiven sins so that we can be true and sincere, worshiping God, not because we are holy, but he has made us so through forgiveness. Are you forgiven? Do you trust in this God? who is personal, and if he is personal, responds to our petitions, and he's also personal in punishing our sin. Not one sin has God ever looked over. It is either fully transferred to the payment of Christ, or it rests on your shoulders until you pray in faith to the God of grace. When you ask the God of grace to forgive you, when you respond in faith to what he has done on the cross, when you see the sinfulness of your sin, then you can be saved. And God is always the Savior. He is the God of my salvation. In other words, you're not saved because you pray. You're not saved because you believe. You're saved because God does it. And you do that stuff in response to his saving work. Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes faith can be seen as a work, like, I believe, therefore God saved me. No, God is a savior, therefore you believe. Do you believe? And if he is, let this psalm pattern for you how to enter into his presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. It is a sweet reminder to be called to worship by someone who never stepped foot in a church. But worship the same God who from ancient of days is the God whose presence we need. The God who welcomes and forgives sinners by cleansing them and turning them to walk in his ways. Lord, give us a heart to follow after you. Help us to avoid sin and to pursue pleasing you because we love you. Not merely do we do these things, Father, because sin is hard. We must do them because we love you. We fear you. We fear displeasing you. We are motivated because we love you. Lord, sanctify our hearts towards these thoughts. I also ask that you would give your church a boldness in prayer. If this worshiper can come into your presence asking for forgiveness, asking for protection, with such confidence that you will react and respond to his petitions, then, Lord, energize our church to be a praying church filled with the worship of requests who knows no other rescuer and looks for no other help than to rest in your care and your rescue. Father, I pray that our church would exalt you this week. Guard us from a type of worship that worships for two hours on Sunday morning and then ignores you for the next six and three-quarter days and acts like that is appropriate. Lord, fill our homes with moms who are calling their children to love God and pursue him. Give us opportunities in our workplace to help people to see the sweetness and the goodness of a God who rescues people who are alone and lonely. Father, I pray that we'd exalt you by living for you. And even today, Lord, I pray that our church would be marked by sinners turning from sin. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.